When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Genevieve Kosky and Keith Phipps. Co-host Scott Tobias left the country because his parents emigrated, but we're sure this is just a short-term separation and that the fates will bring us back together again soon. In his place, we're bringing back multi-talented and multi-hyphenated critic, podcaster, and affectionate friend of the show, David Chen. Welcome back, David. I'm so excited to be here. It feels David, like... it's been too long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited to f- be here. It feels like I have known you not only in this life, but potentially a past one past podcasts all, mm-hmm. all the past podcasts leading to this one it's almost like he's he's teasing ahead before we move into our next life though david your new project is decoding everything which is at decodingeverything.com and you've got a couple of pieces up there right now that relate intimately to what we're about to talk about uh, so I'd, I'd like to point people to that um but also just uh, how did decoding everything come together well, it came together because I did not want to use Twitter anymore um, <laughs> for, for like, you know, uh, just reasons. We, we don't need to get into them, you know, but uh, I didn't want to use Twitter anymore. And I wanted to uh, have a platform that I where I theoretically owned more of the relationship with people who uh, consume my work. So launched a newsletter uh, on Substack. And, you know, if, if I ever disagree too much with what Substack's doing, I can take all my email subscribers and move them somewhere else so basically all the work that i used to put into my twitter for over 10 years i am now dedicating to my new newsletter at decodingeverything.com boy making that shift uh, i am probably gonna have to do it one of these days and i i can't imagine it building an audience and then letting it go and move on seems like a pretty difficult thing kind of like yes it is challenging and sad and exciting and uh but you know we, we sometimes we we have we feel like the compelled to move somewhere else and <laughs> That's very much tying in with the movie that we're talking about today, Tasha. Well, yes, as you say, uh, it does, in fact, tie very much into the movie that we're going to be talking about this week. Last week, we talked about John Carney's slow burn art house hit Once, an unrequited romance drama where musical partners Glenn Hansard and Marquetta Irglova play the otherwise unnamed guy and girl, two musicians, respectively, from Ireland and the Czech Republic, who meet on the street of Dublin and build a tentative relationship. He wants it to be something more. She feels obligated to her toddler daughter and to her estranged husband. That sense of a too late connection with another relationship in the way is also a central part of Past Lives, the directorial debut of Celine's song. You have two characters here, Nora and Sung, who grew up together as children in South Korea and have reconnected at a couple of different points in their lives, one in their 20s via online communication, and then later finally reuniting in person in New York in their 30s. In each of these three time periods, there are barriers to them being together. And by the end of the film, the script explores the idea that this is somehow connected to the Korean concept of inyun, the idea that two people who connect with each other in this life have many, many past lives where they connected with each other, building up to the relationship that they have now. The concept of inyun ends up being a central difference between past lives and once. John Carney's film portrays its central relationship as something that was never really destined to work out, even though the two main characters perhaps want it to. But Past Lives suggests that its main characters are maybe just one or two reincarnations away from the lives they want together. We'll get into it after this break. There's a word in Korean, inyon. It means providence or fate. Do you believe in that? That's just something Koreans say to seduce someone. What did 
good story this is. Childhood sweethearts who reconnect 20 years later and realize they were meant for each other. In the story, I would be the evil white American husband standing in the way of destiny. Shut up. He was just this kid in my head for such a long time. I think I just missed him. Did he miss you? David, I, I really want to start with a piece that you wrote for Decoding Everything about how past lives and the Pixar film Elemental, which we d- discussed in a Patreon bonus episode, are both primarily immigrant stories. I feel like once touches pretty heavily on the immigrant experience as well, but maybe is less of expressly an immigrant story than uh, than past lives is. I'm wondering how you put these, uh, the two films that we're talking about today together a- as part of the, the piece that you did uh, for Decoding Everything. Yeah, I think they these two movies present distinct visions of the immigrant experience. They're not even contradictory in any way. But I would say Elemental is a fairly conventional immigrant story, which is to say these immigrants, in the case of Elemental, show up. uh, They're fire people in the case of Elemental. They show up in this new city, Element City, and they need to adapt. They find the place to be quite inhospitable to them. And it's about that journey of what it's like to assimilate. Right, That's kind of what uh, Elemental is about. And, And particularly for the next generation, being torn between the values of the place you came from and the values of the place that you're in. Very common immigrant story. We've seen it told many times, rarely as beautifully, uh, just visually uh, in Elemental. But, uh, but we, we've kind of seen that story before, I would argue. You know, like um, another example that comes to mind just off the top of my head is like The Big Sick. If you've seen that, you know, there's a very similar dynamic uh, with the main character in that movie uh, and, and trying to navigate being in a new country. Past Lives is interesting to me because it delves into the immigrant story with a little bit more nuance. What's rare about immigrant stories is you rarely get the perspective of the people who are left behind. Like most immigrant stories start when the people like arrive at the country or like right before they arrive at the uh, in the new country. And Past Lives asks the question, "Hey, what about all the stories that were interrupted when that person mm. left? Like what what about all the the what ifs and so on that, that could have happened, but never did because that person left. And I'd never seen a movie engage really in that way before, other than maybe like everything, everywhere, all at once, which, which does tackle this a little bit as well, but it's not as grounded as past lives. I'll put it that way. I think one of the things that your essay on these two movies also just drew out for me is the, the degree to which Canada is kind of seen as a a place of potential opportunity for Nora, but it it doesn't have that feeling of, you know, like Irish immigrants in the 20s or something, like people escaping like grinding poverty or something like his house, you know, people escaping genocide. There's not a desperation people are getting away from. There's just sort of a sense of, yeah, maybe we can we can get a little closer to our goals here. And as a result, it's just it's not a movie, it's not a conventional immigrant experience movie about facing prejudice and bigotry or facing big questions of assimilation. It's just sort of a, a story about two people that that don't quite connect and like they both seem to have perfectly functional lives uh in their respective countries they there doesn't seem to be like a huge level of difference in the opportunities that they're afforded or or where they go with them it's just that they're not in the same space anymore i think that's largely right the only thing i would add is i think that in past lives uh, let's just call it North America because Nora occupies both Canada and the United States in the movie. But in past lives, I think the concept of North America is um, this idea of kind of self-actualization, right? Like you, she says, you can't win a Nobel prize for literature in South Korea. And that is the child version of Nora's opinion about that topic. So I agree with you. It's not like, Oh, we're fleeing economic or uh, religious hardship or whatever. But I do think it's it's beyond just, hey, this is nice. I think there is some kind of idea of like self-actualization, achieving one's dreams or one's dreams being more within reach once one is in North America. So 
Although I, one thing, again, it's, it's going to be a little hard, I think, for me to discuss past lives without putting it into some kind of context with once. I feel like with once there's a, a just a great big question mark of like, his music is good. We've recognized that his music is good. This recording guy has recognized that the music is good. I don't feel like we get a whole lot of sense for Nora's work and whether her goals of achieving a, a Nobel Prize or a Pulitzer Prize, or you know, she kind of goes through a series of prizes that she's looking for recognition. I don't know that we get enough of a sense of her art to have an idea of like whether her goals are achievable or like she's just a dreamer. I think we get a taste of it. And I think there's sort of like she's surrounded by signs that she's doing pretty good, pretty well. You know, I mean, all signs point to her like being busy, kind of moving up and, and you know, being respected uh, in, in that final s- sequence. So I, I think, you know, I don't think it, whether or not her art is good or not is central to this film and the way it is to once i think it's more i think actually seeing more of her art might become more distraction because i think it's i think it's interested in other aspects of her identity that's inter- that's interesting that's not the impression i got keith uh, I, no really i i got the sense that i didn't get the sense that she was doing badly but i certainly got the sense that not all of her dreams had come true that, that's mm-hmm. kind of the sense I got because she does yeah. have that, that that conversation with Arthur where they're talking about the apartment that they live in. And I think you also see Arthur's book signing, which is, again, it's fine. Like, if I, my recollection is it's fine. It's not like completely His book packed. is called Boner, which yeah. I, I would like to know more about. But Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's not like it's not like there's like, um, you know, a, a hundred people in line waiting to get a signature on his boner book sure um <laughs> do you, so do you know what i'm saying like so it's i got the sense that hey she's doing fine it's not yeah. bad but it's not exactly kind of the life that she had imagined for herself but i think it seems like you know maybe i'm maybe projecting so much because i i just know that it's you know there's a lot of autobiographical elements in this, right. but i don't know that at Celine's song you know Celine's song is you know acclaimed and well known and has been successful but i, I imagine at least before past lives maybe uh her apartment wasn't much nicer than <laughs> than nora's you know mm-hmm. I, I don't yeah. I, that level of success doesn't necessarily get you you know fame and fortune but you can make a living doing what you do and earn respect and i think that's kind of where she is yeah uh i i think that's right uh you know keith we we obviously didn't see the next chapter of nora's life where she directs an a24 critically acclaimed movie <laughs> um, exactly but uh but yeah you know i i i think obviously for you and me keith who make a living doing things that we are really passionate about in the media, seeing somebody who is also succeeding in that regard feels like, uh, you know, uh, success to, to a significant degree. But mm-hmm. I think based on the conversation she has with Arthur, it's like, ah, it's going okay. You know, like that's not, not great, not terrible. Um, that was my sense of it anyway. So. I keep thinking about in the context of this conversation, one of her conversations with Hey Sung, and he's actually talking about himself, but about how his life has turned out to be very ordinary. Like he keeps using the word ordinary. And at that point in Nora's life, like she doesn't even really have a, a prize that she <laughs> that she wants anymore. You know, like it kind of I got the sense that her that she feels that she's kind of plateaued. We do get a brief scene, I think, of maybe audition. We get a couple lines of one of her plays that uh, someone is performing. I think I believe it's at an audition. And she doesn't seem like particularly enthralled or happy <laughs> with, with it in, in that moment. Mm. So I kind of interpreted like her career at, at this point uh, is, like I said, kind of plateauing or not being everything she had hoped it would be when she was 12 or in her 20s, you know, yeah. which is a, a very relatable thing, much more relatable than having all your dreams come true. So <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Well, speaking of relatability, like we we zoomed in real fast on this movie uh, to a real small degree because I, I really wanted to get to that essay of yours, which I just I found very interesting and enlightening. But kind of pulling back a little, this is one of your favorite movies of the year, you've said, David. And I'm I'm very curious where where all of the places that you didn't connect with once, where are the places that you did connect with past lives? Why is this such a strong movie for you? Well, uh, as I indicated in our conversation about once, I think you really need to like love that music, you know, to, mm-hmm. to love that movie. In my opinion, you know, some people maybe don't agree, but like 
I don't feel like that's as relevant here. You know, there's there's not necessarily like a similar component of the movie that this hangs on. I think that the questions that this movie raises are really interesting to me because what the character is experiencing is how would my life have been different if I didn't leave? Right. Like that's in my opinion, that's what Nora is going through for a significant part of this movie. And I would say that's certainly something that like my parents have probably speculated on. My parents are immigrants, you know, something that I have considered to, to, for myself is like, what, 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 you know, if I had never, le- if my parents had never left like decades ago, like what, 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 how would that have played out? You know, there's this alternate life that you just barely have any kind of frame of reference for what it would have been like. And what this character has in this movie is this physic, this presence that like reminds her of what it could have been. And that's just like a very fascinating dynamic, you know? So for me, it raises these very interesting questions that I myself have experienced of, hey, yeah, what, what, how would that have been? And like, what is it? And when you connect with people from back then, it's like, there's this kind of different version of you that they, they connect with that you, that you, they may not even really know who you are really, you know? And, and so, so yeah, these like interesting, rich questions, nuanced questions. They're not simple questions, right? They're not like, everything was great after I left the homeland. You know, like it's it's like these nuanced things that um, really made me reflect on my own life and the decisions I've made. These are the reasons that I really love this film. I like hearing you talk about Sung as like kind of a personification of the the what if of her life because I I think I enjoy this movie least as a romance uh, between the two of them in part just because Sung just feels very thinly drawn compared to Nora which makes sense she's our point of view character it is autobiographical but like the connection between them you know forged in childhood and separated by decades it doesn't feel that strong, at least based in them as people. It's very much like a relationship based in nostalgia. And like you say, the question of, of what if. And that is all like more interesting uh, and rich to me than the the romance that this is kind of being marketed as, and that's fine. But uh, there are there's just so much more going on around that relationship that I want to know more about. And this film is so subdued and so tonally just quiet and conversation based. And that's fine. But all around these conversations are just all these other little things I want to know more about, like Nora's family just drops out of the uh, Mm -hmm. equation. Her marriage with Arthur is kind of fascinating to me. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of a pairing we just did, the New Hall of Center movie, uh, You Hurt My Feelings, and just like how much truth and frankness can a marriage sustain and, and handle. All of that is kind of swirling in here, but the movie just like keeps kind of coming back to Nora and Sung, And it works to a degree, but I think just like all the kind of ellipses this movie <laughs> left uh, dangling kind of kept it from being a transcendent experience for me. Yeah, I think that, but I think I like the ellipses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a your mileage may vary kind of thing. Um, I mean, but. <laughs> I, I, I like it I, I, with you, though. I like it least as a romance because I think there's an obvious attraction and connection between them. But I found myself actively rooting for the film not to go there, you know, <laughs> and, and like and I think it, it really does a good job of stepping up to the edge and, and like kind of measuring how what these people mean to what each character mean to each other and, and having art in the mix uh, is a whole other element to it. And it kind of just lets that, you know, lets you live in that tension for, for a while. Um, in terms of like, I think one of the most fascinating moments to me is when 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 she's talking to her husband about he's so Korean, you know, and like and, and like this is you know she's probably spent her whole life being seen as Korean, but that for her definition, for her that de- the definition of what that means is very different than others. Or even when she's telling Arthur about the the concept of Inyoung, and uh, you know he, he says something like, "Oh, so you know have." Like he's like trying to romanticize, it and she's like, "No, that's just something Koreans say." You know, <laughs> like she plays it down in 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 that moment, uh, which is interesting given how the film resolves around that concept. I think that when I interviewed uh, Celine Song, which you can read at decodingeverything.com, one of the fascinating things 
that she mentioned was that the inspiration for the film was basically she had experienced what happens in the opening scene of the film, which is she's sitting there in a bar with her husband and then this dude from her past. And she's kind of trying to like translate between these two characters, between these two people. Right. And people around her are probably wondering what's going on with these people. Like what, what is their deal? And uh, the movie is her attempt to explain what her deal is and like what her story is. It's like her inviting you into be like, let me tell you a little bit about me and how I ended up in this situation. <laughs> I, I bring this up because there is something really unique about that situation that she's in at the beginning of the film. And also at the end of the film, which is she's sitting between these two people who like have affection for her and connection for her in very different ways in different contexts that would never be there together if it weren't for her. Right. And I think that, as an immigrant, in her case specifically, Nora's case specifically, you sit at this nexus of all these different people, like all these different ideas and people. You have the values and the memories from where you came from, but you also have all these new experiences, and you're kind of this fusion of both of them in a way that is really unique. And I think the movie does capture like how special that is. Um, and I bring it up because Genevieve, you're talking about like, or Keith and Genevieve, you're talking about like how she's saying he's so Korean. And it's like, she's the only person that would have any kind of frame of reference for that in that conversation. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It, it just kind of reminded me of like what Celine Song said the inspiration for the movie was and like what I think the movie does a good job of capturing. Yeah, that opening scene is kind of fascinating to me because she she takes that idea of what she and her husband and her friend look like from the outside, and she puts it in the mouth of other characters, characters we never see, know nothing about, never return to, who are commenting on, on what they're seeing. And like coming in from that completely outside perspective, where she's just kind of like channeling an imaginary voice outside of her own head, I think is a really interesting way to frame the movie, especially since that scene in the bar kind of bookends the film. I had a hard time connecting to a lot of this movie, particularly the parts that are just two people kind of like sitting and having like fairly surfacey, like 20 something uh, conversations with each other at length. And that scene in the bar uh, at, at the end of the movie, the, the second book end for it, uh, which isn't the final scene in the movie, but it to me is the climax of the movie. It just really brought it all into perspective because there's a realism that I, I just really like recognized and resonated with in the way the two of them are trying to speak English to be polite to her husband and yet just kind of like falling into Korean because there are important things that they need to say to each other because this is the language they have in common. And they know that they're being exclusionary, but they have a relationship that excludes him. They have a relationship that's separate from him. And it's just an awkward thing that they're all there together where they're trying sort of to pretend that they're all friends equally when they just very much aren't. And then when he starts bringing in this concept and this kind of end of 25th hour fantasy about what they might have been to each other or might be to each other. That's sort of a, a goodbye. That's just sort of an acknowledgement of like, this relationship isn't, isn't anything that it could have been if everything had been different, but that's just the way life is. Uh, despite her kind of disavowing of the whole concept earlier in the film, it just seemed very touching. It seemed like a very healthy way to look at things in the world that aren't as you might like them. Well, you know, we're just we're one reincarnation off the uh, the version of this that worked. So then how do you all take her final sobbing at, at the end? What, 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 what is she sobbing over? I think it's just an overwhelming emotional experience and not necessarily the loss of the love of her life. I never mm -hmm. read it that way at all. Yeah. It's just like this is just an intense experience that kind of throws a lot of her own, you know, elements of her own life and identity uh, that she might not think about on a daily basis. She has to, you know, hold up to intense scrutiny because of this. Yeah. And I, I think as David suggested, this is a story about what ifs. And I don't think she's going to spend the rest of her life weeping. I think she's probably going to be fine and moving on to the rest of her life two days from now. But in that moment, I think I think she spent the entire movie in a different emotional space from Sung most of the time, where he's seeing all of the directions his life could have gone with her, but also just outside of, of his country. 
Like he seems kind of discontent with his job, discontent with his life, to some degree discontent with his identity. And he sees this woman who went down a different path and it kind of changed the direction that his life went in. And he spends the whole movie kind of reckoning with it. And I I think that she has that experience at the very end of the movie, but it all hits her all at once. And it's just everything that he's been like living with for 20 years, she's kind of like piling on all in a moment. And I, I think it's really compelling because I think sometimes emotions do hit you like that. I, I kind of agree with both of you. I think that it is really about all those what ifs, all those possibility hitting her at that time. And like, and it's just a lot to handle. It's a lot to handle. Uh, I, I would agree that it's not like, oh, the light, like he's the one that got away. I don't think it's that. It's just, it's, it's, it's more nuanced or complicated or potentially even larger in scope than that. It's kind of like, you know, what is this life I never had? You know, like to take in the possibility of a life you never had, whether or not it involved this guy is just a lot. And I think mm-hmm. she's just being overwhelmed by that in that moment. So yeah, that was my interpretation. Yeah, I, th- I think just sort of coming to terms with the fact of of like every choice, you know, in this in this year, this year of our Lord 2023, when half of the stories on the screen are multiverse stories, I think once again, kind of coming to terms with the choices that you make are meaningful, but they cut off other choices is just always an emotional thing to deal with, like when you let it hit you. I just uh, I don't want to sidetrack too much, but like a grand theory, I wonder if we're getting all these multiverse stories because we just went through a moment where we all had to like pause our lives. And, you know, you know, the direction we thought we were heading in just stopped. You can kind of imagine like, well, what if the pandemic didn't happen? I don't know. <laughs> Probably a topic for another podcast. But, but it- Well, yeah. Celine Song, she she wrote this before the pandemic. I read, oh, don't right? throw my theory off. I, no, no, no. But, but, but I mean, it's certainly, you know, I think colors the reception of all of these films at this point in time. To go back to the final beat of, of her breaking down uh, in, in tears uh, after Sung leaves, like I, I agree with all of, of your interpretations. I would add that I think there might also be a layer of a certain recognition on her part of how deeply her leaving affected Sung, which doesn't mm. seem to be something she fully grasps uh until fairly deep into the movie like she doesn't even remember his name at first when when she's like fi- looking him up on facebook you know like there's a, a definite sort of differential i think in, in this relationship as far as like how much one has thought about the other and that evolves over the course of, of, of the film of course but i think the their final interaction maybe in addition to you know bringing up all these questions and feelings of nostalgia like also maybe made her feel a little bad about how she how she treated him not even treated him but how um how maybe little thought she gave him um, up until this point when he gave her so much thought you know, I I don't know that there's strict evidence in the movie against that, but it's certainly not how I took it. If anything, it almost feels more to me like she's kind of had a window this entire time into the what if of whatever family had moved, what if she had stayed. And by maintaining this long distance relationship with him, she's always kind of like kept like one one delicate foot just very gently touching what this other life might have looked like. And to me, when he tells her goodbye to get into his Uber, it feels pretty final. It feels not like they're never going to speak again, but like they might never speak again, like they might never have to speak again because it feels like he's been holding on to this sort of this thin thread of possibility that they might have a future together and you can see him let it go. And I feel like her, her breaking down is to some degree realizing that like this possibility is no longer a possibility, like no matter how unlikely it ever was, you know, coming to terms with if I, if I can get real personal, Like, I never particularly planned to have kids, but when I reached an age where I realized, no, I definitively will never have kids, it was a different thing. Like, deciding you don't want something and having circumstances decide for you that you're not getting it are just very different things. Mm -hmm. And to me, one of the big things I see in that moment is just the, the string snapping of that just very, very tenuous 
what if, but in this life, there are still choices that could potentially be made to take her away from her husband and and off into this other life. And I think at the moment where that goes away, probably permanently, it, it's not to say that she couldn't get on an Uber and chase him to the airport, well, you know, in a, a big romantic gesture that we've seen in so many movies. But she's decided that she won't. And she's seen him decide that he's not going to pursue it either. And it's just a door closing for her. I think she also loves her husband. Oh, you yeah. Know, I, I think that's, I think that's, 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 you can't discount that either. Yeah. I like that interpretation to Tasha maybe more than mine. I, I think maybe I am inching toward just acknowledging that I find, I found Nora maybe a slightly difficult character to to like mm. at times um or not even it's not even necessarily about whether i like her but you know she uh, uh can be pretty self-centered <laughs> you, you know and um i think the movie kind of reflects that in its intense focus on her i don't know i i think i am just maybe a little primed to <laughs> place a little fault or blame on her in in their relationship uh but that is maybe also just a symptom of the uh aforementioned sort of thin characterization of of Hayesung and the way that their relationship is portrayed well when we're talking about thin characters uh who who aren't given a whole lot of detail for a very specific point in the movie i, I think we're pretty much have to move into connections. But before we let go of talking about past lives, David, I wanted to touch on something from your interview with Celine Song that I I found particularly interesting, where she talks about kind of that the tension between technology being able to bring us together uh, over long distances and also having an isolating effect, which is something I think a lot of people have talked a lot about over the past couple of decades, because it's something so many of us have experienced. But I think the way she's exploring it in this film and the way she explores it in your interview is particularly interesting. And I'm wondering what you make of that aspect of the film. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. I loved how the movie was period accurate uh, when it came to Skype. Like she could have set the movie <laughs> six years later than it was and everyone would be FaceTiming and it would be beautiful and awesome. But uh, she said it when she said it. And so people are using Skype to connect. And one observation that Celine Song had made is that at first, when you when you start using Skype, it's amazing. It's awesome. Like, wow, we're living in the future. I can see you. And then as time goes on, the limitations of the technology come into stark relief. And you desire more intimacy, but your medium is this format that does not foster it because the connection's terrible, because sometimes you can't reach the person. I really thought the and movie Skype did a, probably through yeah. those horrible noises too, the the, the beeping and <laughs> yes. everything. It's, yeah, Absolutely, like that. Absolutely, and and the movie does a good job of capturing the magic and also the frustration with like a relationship that is mediated by technology. I think, and how at the end of the day, like at, at some points, it just becomes not enough uh, for this to develop in the way that these people are both kind of interested in. So. Well, speaking of technological connections, we're all talking to each other via technology. We're all looking at each other on fuzzy non-Skype connections here. And uh, we're going to move into connections between past lives and once after this break. Is he attractive? I think so. He's really masculine in this way that I think is so Korean. Are you attracted to him? I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, I don't think so. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things that they have in common. I kind of want to kick this off by talking about how both of these movies kind of stem a little bit from the nostalgia for past relationships. Uh, in in past lives, it's both of these characters looking back to their childhood connection. In once, it's a, a man looking at a woman who broke his heart and a woman looking at a man that she kind of doesn't seem to have a good relationship with. And just they don't she doesn't think that they work together, but she still wants to recapture that connection for family reasons reasons. 
I feel like these are really radically different in, in terms of their approaches to how we look at our past relationships and how they shape us. But it is just kind of a, a theme through both movies that I think maybe just comes with, we were talking in the first half about how these are both very adult movies where people just don't act on their groin feelings. They they talk about it, they hear each other's no's and, and they make adult decisions based on where they are in their lives. I kind of feel like the degree to which people in these movies look back on their past relationships with longing, but with to some degree, like a little bit of clarity about what they are and are not still seeing from those relationships is kind of just a, a big point in common for both of them. But only one of them dedicates several songs to nostalgia <laughs> for a past relationship. Well, if if Hayesung was primarily a musician, I'm sure that he would have uh, many, yeah. many songs to share. Oh, he'd have whole albums, concept <laughs> albums about, but, <laughs> about what might have been. But I mean, in, in terms of past lives, like being autobiographical, like kind of on a on a meta level, you know, mm. it is creating art about nostalgia toward a relationship. So it's kind of works in, on that level. Yeah. I, I mean, the thing that resonates to me the most about these is like i guess you know when i grew up i watched a bunch of romantic comedies like my best friend's wedding or you know when harry met sally or whatever that are all about these like grand gestures and so on and running through the air love actually you know running through the airport to find the person and and then you grow you grow up and you realize that almost never happens that way right and what these movies reflect is like, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't happen that way. Life is messy and complicated and there's like a hundred things competing for both your affection and attention. And at the end of the day, we, we can only be so lucky if we are a memorable event in someone's life sometimes, you know? <laughs> yeah, and often in real life you wouldn't want it to happen the way it happens in movies. Like you you don't want that person you've been seeing to break into your apartment in order to fill it with roses because they think it's a grand romantic <laughs> gesture. <laughs> It would actually yeah, be frightening. Kind of creepy if somebody was chasing you through the the uh, the airport screaming at you, or showed up at your door with a series of signs that say like, "I don't want to interrupt your life, but by the way, I love you." Now I'm going to leave. They yeah. can buy you a piano, though. Buying a piano yeah. always a good. <laughs> That's grand fine. Gesture. That's like there's utility in that. There's some utility. Yeah, so. yeah. it worked in Little Women. It works in. <laughs> it's in a really months. nice piano in this case. <laughs> So uh, what what we're saying is the grand romantic gesture doesn't work unless you're buying somebody something. It feels, it feels very capitalist. <laughs> well, it didn't work even with that, you know? Well, I mean, I think in, in past lives, we could we, we could consider Sung coming to New York as the sort of grand romantic gesture, at least a, a attempt there. Like, I, I don't, it's hard to tell, like, exactly what his intent was if he was, like, looking for closure or trying to actually make something happen you know but he i don't think he knows though does he yeah, yeah. uh maybe maybe not but there there is that moment where norris says to arthur like he he came here for me <laughs> you, yeah. you know mm -hmm. like the, the the recognition of of the reason he's he's there you know uh the uh, completely rainy uh <laughs> weekend in new york you know uh having a otherwise pretty mundane uh vacation but to the point we're all talking about like it doesn't amount to anything to to call back to a, a phrase from from once it's it's worthless <laughs> in the end you know? i i think it's interesting that distance does make a difference in both of these relationships and yet at the same time you can see where physical distance isn't the real barrier like in their 20s when nora and Sung are going back and forth over skype there's a whole series of exchanges where they're basically both kind of gently suggesting, well, you could get on a plane and come to me. And both of them are kind of saying, well, no, that's that's not convenient. And I'm, I'm not going to do that right now. It It's the willingness to make the journey and to pay for the journey and to accept the disruption of life for the journey that's the real decision and sacrifice that neither of them are quite making. You know, they're both kind of hedging a little bit. And at the end of once, you know, Guy is moving to London. Comparatively, that's not all that far from Dublin. There's no reason these two characters can never see each other again. But just as with that, like, thread snapping moment at the end of Past Lives, there's sort of a sense of they've both let go of this. They've both let go of this moment. And they may remember it fondly. They may write songs about it. But 
they've decided that it's not happening. And suddenly the physical distance that wouldn't necessarily have to be a barrier if they were destined to be together or if they were devoted to being together uh, seems like a much bigger barrier than it is. I think the big difference now that I think about it is in once you have an episode between these two people that plays out from beginning to end and whatever like sort of like feelings of what might have been they have, they've still had this chapter in their lives that are where they were important to each other and where they've you know, re, re, kind of redirected each other's lives a little bit. But with uh, past lives, it's all about what, never happened and what will never happen you know the 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 you know they never there's like this missing l it's like you know in some ways kind of ellipses like like you know there's this moment they skipped over where they could have had a relationship where they could have like really kind of seen what they meant to each other and and they didn't and and, and never will uh, i think that's kind of that's a kind of a key difference between the two of them in terms of connections uh, I, I just want to give listeners a little behind the scenes peek into what it's like to make the next picture show. There's obviously an extremely detailed show document. And, you know, Tasha has written out all the connections and every single one is like, I'm reading this list. I'm like, wow, that is a good connection. You know, so obviously <laughs> a lot of insight. I, I assume Tasha wrote all this. Uh, a lot of insight into this. And the one that jumps out at me is this, uh, this immigration one, right? Like both of them deal with immigration in a way that I didn't even remember for once. But I think that the, the thing that both of these movies bring to light is if you're an immigrant, there's basically this whole other life that most people don't have access to. Like they don't understand, they don't have access to in your current place. In the case of past lives, Arthur with Nora, like he he talks about how like she dreams and when she dreams, she speaks in Korean and he, he just has no no frame of reference for what that is, what her life was like and what, what her whole upbringing. And with once it's girl's ex-husband and we don't even know what that dude is like we we never even see him and so i think one thing i really like about both both movies is like if you're an immigrant if you're moving your life from one place to another like there's all this baggage all these memories all these associations that like most people just don't have access to and that is a significant barrier when it comes to trying to like create a new relationship but you may not want to create a new relationship you know or or form um new romantic bonds because of that i think there's also a like something that neither movie comes out and and says and it's just as well because you know this can remain just kind of a realistic theme that you can notice if you're looking for it but neither one of these films really is in a place to to preach about it it would be a little too overt I think there's a feeling that immigrants are just tougher than other people, you know, they've, that they've gone through a, a significant disruption and they have lived these like multitudinous lives. They just they have more information about different cultures and living in different places and different experiences and, and choices than the rest of us. Like Nora just seems inherently kind of like tougher and more confident, a little more prepared for life. It just it feels like Arthur is a bit of a like a protected New York flower who doesn't know enough about her experience. I, I think it's a really nice touch in the movie that he's tried to learn Korean, that he's tried to like engage with her family and engage with her culture. Like he isn't just expecting her to uh, to fully assimilate and for like any changes to be made to be on her part. But in the same way, she just seems like a little tougher and, and more confident and more together uh, than Hey Sung. Girl seems similarly just like, you know, she takes over the bargaining at the studio. She bosses people around. She takes control of the relationship. She just she seems like she's been through more and she's had to become like a slightly more confident and harder person. Even though she's visibly younger, she's also a parent, which, you know, changes how people relate to the world. She seems to be probably supporting her mother uh, in a foreign country. There's just a lot of, of baggage that these two characters are carrying around that nobody else in these stories are. And it seems to have made them both both more nuanced and just more, a little more prepared for life, maybe. No disagreement here. <laughs> <laughs> Another connection that I think we've already kind of touched on uh, in various points throughout both of these discussions, but is that, uh, you know, there are 
both large and small uh, language and cultural barriers between these these characters. And the and the way the language bear in particular is deployed in each film is very interesting and meaningful. And I th- I think it's notable that like two of the scenes that we homed in on on each film the uh the i love you scene and in once in the scene at the bar uh in past lives both kind of turn on a lack of understanding on one part uh, of what the other is is saying and i don't know if there is a whole lot more to say that hasn't that we haven't already said about both of those scenes but i do think it is uh you know another point where these two films connect I think it's an interesting thing that Sung is trying to learn English and trying to speak English as much as possible. And Arthur is trying to learn Korean and kind of the connection there between that and a guy sort of fumblingly trying to pick up a, a few phrases in Czech. Although he seems to be doing it, you know, it kind of brought up him asking girl if she loves her husband and wanting to do it in Czech felt less like he's trying to communicate in her language and almost more like he's trying to distance the question from himself. But I, I mean, I do like the the fact that they at least bring in him making an effort, like making an effort to reach out in her language or understand just like a little more about her language. I think I would observe that language plays a different role in both films. In past lives, it's a very critical part where Nora understands both English and Korean and she kind of serves, she's again, like this kind of nexus of both cultures and can almost be like translating between people from each culture, but kind of like a doorway to people who want to understand the other person, in this, this case, Arthur and Sung. In Once, language is almost like the least effective way they are communicating with each other in the sense that like, or not least effective, because there's obviously language in the songs. But I mean, like music is their primary form of communication. You know, like that, that is how, whenever he's like sharing the deepest parts of him, it's through song, right? Like that's, that's most of how he communicates his most heartfelt ideas. So I just thought that was interesting that like this idea that in the case of past lives, it's like, it's this bridge, language is a bridge between the two of them. And yes, there's language and music too, but like that's not their primary way of connecting in once, in my opinion. I would call it music in once. So yeah. Yeah, and in keeping with that, it's it's interesting that when girl takes guy home, uh, she and her mother just speak in Czech. And yeah. she translates almost none of it. Uh, because these things fascinate me. I I pulled out a little translator and like listened to some of that dialogue. And when she first comes in, she's basically just like asking how her child is. And the mom's saying like, oh, well, we went to the park, but she got really tired. So I came home. Like there is just like a whole little story being told there. And, you know, those of us that don't speak Czech are in the place of guy just kind of standing awkwardly as this conversation that we don't understand is going on with just no context for it. And she translates little bits of what her mother is saying, like as she deems them relevant. But as soon as she steps into that environment, she's kind of shutting him out. You know, she's she's back in the life that she started from that. It's not that he's not welcome there. It's just that he doesn't have a place there. You know, he he doesn't know her mother. He tries to relate sort of awkwardly to the child who just completely ignores him as a, a very young child will. And he's just sort of trying to like awkwardly insert himself in a place where he doesn't know the language and doesn't know the rules. And it's not a big deal. It's not a big drama. It's just sort of a, a quiet notification that, you know, she's a bilingual person with two different lives. And one of those lives he hasn't stepped into before and doesn't know where he belongs in it. Just a little uh, detail I wanted to uh, tag on to what, what David was saying about like music being the language in which they communicate in first. Uh, and like, yes, there being words, language in the song. But the first time they play together when he's like kind of walking her through the song, it's just ba 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 da da da. You know, it's just it's just syllables. Yep. The the words come second. It's the, the notes, the, the music first. So I like that interpretation. Well, Tasha, one of the last uh, connections on this uh, immaculate show doc is <laughs> uh, is about like creative work and artist connections, and and I think that's like it is. I don't think it's an accident that in both past lives and once there are at least one or two characters in each film that want to pursue their passion of making art somehow, and uh, I'll just say that what that says to me is often wistful, longing, 
passion and romance, like those feelings, are often adjacent to creation, you know, or being creative. And like the feeling like that drives one is like very similar in size and scope to the feeling that drives the other, you know? It makes a lot of sense. It it does kind of strike me that guy and girl do kind of primarily bond over music and through music. Whereas with past lives, that is something that Sung and Nora don't really seem to have in common. Instead, it's what she has in common with Arthur. And because it, it's the like a point emotions, of contract, a contrast between the two of them, right? It's yeah, like exactly. He, he has lived a life that is the most opposite you can imagine from a playwright, probably, you know? I, uh, I I think of that scene when watching Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, so I can understand what Montauk is. <laughs> <laughs> just be completely puzzled by, yeah, by everything. I just I think it's interesting that in both of these movies, the um, the visible emotions or the emotions that people allow them to self to express in non sung words are so dialed down. There's so much restraint that it's a little hard sometimes to get a handle on Nora and Arthur's relationship. Like we see them at home together and they seem to have just kind of like a very bantery, but also very practical relationship that's just built like very heavily in like the domestic details of household duties and where everything goes. The connection that they make is at the writer's workshop and it's, it's through their art and it's that sequence where they encounter each other at that workshop and sort of engage back and forth that convinces me that she does love him, that they do have a connection that trumps this sort of evanescent uh, thing, sort of maybe theoretical, maybe past future life uh, thing that she has with Sung, because it's something that they have just kind of fundamentally in common. And I, I think it's interesting that both of these movies have people that have connected through art. But in this case, it's two different legs of the love triangle. I'm not even sure you can say once is a triangle, though. It seems it's, it's a much, a much, a much more, there's more, there's more points on it. It's kind of an oddly shaped uh, thing, whatever it's it is. It's more of an oblong spheroid. It's like a four, four legs, but two of them are like kind of askew and broken. <laughs> well, love triangles or love oblongs or however you want to describe these relationships. It's a love rhombus. <laughs> <laughs> Why is neither of these movies called The Love Rhombus? I, I, they're, they're both small art house movies that have kind of made a splash in their own right, but they could have been blockbusters under the name The Love Rhombus. That is something that they both have in common. Uh, the older Love Rhombus is currently streaming on Hulu and the Roku channel. Uh, you can rent once through uh, various digital services. It's on DVD. It's on Blu-ray. Uh, the newer Love Rhombus Past Lives is currently in theaters. it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. We were originally talking about picking another romance that didn't happen movie for this segment, uh, but Genevieve, you pointed something out about some of the movies that uh, might have fit, fit this category. You want to take this? Uh, well, just that we've covered a whole lot of movies <laughs> that could have paired quite nicely uh, with past lives, uh, including, as uh, David just uh, mentioned, uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which wasn't on this list originally. But we also we've talked about Brief Encounter. We've talked about Before Sunrise, In the Mood for Love. Uh, anyone else want to jump in with some examples? La La Land came up for me kind of late when I was assembling this list of of past romance that didn't happen movies. I had I'd completely forgotten uh, the degree to which that also is kind of a a passionate artistic connection that then kind of goes on to not be a, a permanent relationship movie. Yeah, I had forgotten that too. Though the movie we paired that with, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, is another one that came to mind as could have paired here very, very nicely. So, but we we took it off the table already. We can't do it. I, yeah, I know. We're we, we're almost four hundred episodes deep. This is this this keeps happening. So I we're guess kidding, I, we're, we're going to run out of movies. I know. There are no movies left that we haven't covered, uh, particularly <laughs> movies about romances that didn't happen. David, are any of these like standouts for you, or do you have any other like favorite non-romance? romances uh that that you might recommend no i think these are great great choices uh in the move in the mood for love particularly i think especially because of this idea of displacement of being kind of in a transitory a transient state somewhere 
that's a great choice. So your next picture show is to go back and listen to all of those episodes and think about past lives while you do. <laughs> we we still recommend all of these movies. Yeah, I'll bring an interesting case study. Uh, uh, but but you know, it's kind of like a movie that was changed to become this, which is which is pretty in pink, which ends with with uh, with Ducky not getting the girl. Uh, but you know, <laughs> in the original ending, he he did. But like you know, I think it's an imperfect movie and an imperfect ending. But but I, I really do like Cryer's performance in that, and and he is is certainly the person left behind uh, to wonder what, what might have been, and and the, and, the, and the film as it currently stands. Yeah, I do feel like these movies maybe stand out for us as we're just going back and picking movies that really resonated with us, that we really connected with, that we really remember all these years later. It's the movies where something unusual happened, where they they didn't end up together, that end up standing out for us most, uh, as opposed to the more conventional ones where, like, of course, they're going to get together in the end. Hey, they got together in the end. But I mean, I think one thing that these have in common for the most part is that they're better movies because they don't get together. Yeah, I don't think anybody would want to see any of these movies end with, and then they had a relationship and uh, lived <laughs> lived happily ever after. And that includes the- Well, t- there's a whole third act to In the Mood for Love that's on deleted scenes on the Blu-ray, which was, you know, I kind of wish I'd never watched because it just is odd to think that that's where the film might have gone at some point, but uh, that's a whole other topic. Oh, boy, that is wild. Well, until the uh, DVD versions of Once and Past Lives are released that have secret third acts where these characters end up together, uh, we're going to call it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. We'll be back next week with another set of episodes. Genevieve, do you want to tell us what that pairing is? Co-directed by Molly Gordon and Nick Lieberman, the new comedy theater camp takes place in an upstate New York camp for aspiring young theatrical types that needs a miracle to stay open. Could a big show be the solution? Gordon, who is also one of four credited writers on the film, drew on her expertise with her longtime friend Ben Platt, who co-stars and also contributed to the screenplay. A fond, improv-heavy look at a small-time theatrical production, Theater Camp naturally got us thinking about Christopher Guest's 1996 film Waiting for Guffman, another comedy about putting on a show using a limited budget but unlimited creativity. We'll discuss them both over the course of our next two episodes. For now, we welcome your feedback on wants, past lives, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? David, what, what do you want to tell people about where to find you? I would suggest you check out my newsletter at decodingeverything.com, where I write about TV, movies, and pop culture, as well as the media and technology. So a lot of stuff there, decodingeverything.com. What about what about podcasts? What about your many, many oh. other projects? Well, I'm currently hosting the Filmcast, uh, as uh, I've been doing for the last 15 years. You can check that out at thefilmcast.com. And I'm also covering the latest and greatest in television at Decoding TV. You can find that at podcast.decodingtv or wherever you download your podcasts. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at instagram.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen SKY. YouTube.com slash Dave Chensky or TikTok.com slash at Dave Chensky. How about you, Genevieve? Uh, I am still the TV editor at vulture.com and still very sporadically using Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. And as of less than 24 hours ago, I am on Blue Sky, but I have yet to post anything there. So Woo! Eh, yeah. welcome. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I, I follow maybe 10 people. I don't know. I'm I'm taking my time. I'm getting my Blue Sky feed under me. So, you know, but maybe by the time this goes out there, I'll be, you know, posting. I don't even know what you I'm do. I'm following. On it's a, uh, <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to know what it's called, yeah. Genevieve. But I'm following. It's a very stubble but underpopulated place at, yeah. at the moment. <laughs> All right. Well, well I'll, hopefully I'll get in there and mix it up soon. Uh, Keith, how about you? Um, I'm a freelance writer. You can uh, read my work at places like GQ, The Ringer, TV Guide, Vulture. And I'm on Twitter, still at KFIPS3000, but not very much. I'm also on Blue Sky, more or less the same handle. Uh, but, you know, uh, like as with, as with David, I also have a newsletter, which I co-write with our absent co-host, Scott Tobias. It's called The Reveal. You can Woo! find it at thereveal.substack.com. Um, you know, and check us out. If you like, if you like this podcast, you might like that newsletter one of my favorite newsletters uh, check it out oh thanks david tasha how about you i am the film and streaming editor at polygon.com you can find me on twitter at, okay at, sorry 
I love the enthusiasm. I, I love that David's it's, trying to get. It's, it's so much later for us than David, so he's really like keeping uh, keeping yeah. our spirits. Up. I love that David's trying also, to get the wave going in a, a room with four people. Uh, I am also on Twitter sporadically at Tasha Robinson. Uh, I also am now on Blue Sky at again at Tasha Robinson. Although I also have not posted there yet because you know you when we all look back uh much much like we look back at once and see that very specific moment of digital cameras we look back at past lives and see that very specific moment of really choppy skype we're all gonna look back at blue sky and say what was the first thing we put there and uh i it, i i have got to find a way to make it special and magical yeah uh, i can't and figure not just it something out I barf up. <laughs> yep i might never post over there because i'm i'm always waiting for the perfect thing so uh, when we all move on to whatever the next thing is after blue sky i will still be trying to figure blue sky out David, on the other hand, will have 800 billion followers and be creating eight different varieties of media for it because he just does all of this better than we do. Our absent <laughs> co-host, Scott Tobias, is on Blue Sky at Scott Tobias, not Scott underscore Tobias, which is what he is on Twitter. I believe that he does some sort of like newsletter thing, Keith. Yeah, he does, actually. It's called The Reveal. <laughs> He's also a freelance writer that you can find all over the internet, including in the New York Times. Stay updated on The Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod. Not on Blue Sky yet. We'll get there. Get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. As always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews wherever you listen to this podcast. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance in producing The Next Picture Show. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. <laughs> <laughs>